That is a good way to start the day. Um, man, I just get excited about Sundays. I don't know about you. I just, you never know. Bagpipers. They're up here every, th- every Tuesday, Tuesday night, practicing. So if you need a, like a quiet place to uh, come and sit and think and pray with bagpipes, then this is like, this is the perfect place for that. It doesn't, it doesn't count as noise for me. I don't know about you, but man, that's, anyway, that's a beautiful thing. Um, so <laughs> we are, we have a lot uh, of stuff that we, um, God has been doing through us and with us and that we've gotten a chance to be involved in. I hope you were, those of you who were here for the Tapas Ministry event Wednesday, you got um, to be really blessed. That was a, that was a ton of fun. And the team that put that together did an excellent job. Uh, raised about another $25,000 um, for Thomas Ministry um, stuff. And so if you, especially if you know of someone within our body uh, of believers who are, they face this, the, the chronic, a chronically ill child, make sure that you let us know. We want to find new ways to come alongside them and, and find out new ways to help them and, <clears throat> and that kind of stuff. So again, a huge thing. We had um, uh, yesterday, um, one, of my, one of the things I always grew up kind of hating was empty churches. Um, all week, like the, the millions of dollars worth of property of churches scattered around our country that spend six days a week, sadly, and sometimes seven days a week, almost empty. Um, it, uh, it always, I always get scared of when I go over to Europe or walking around Rome or something like that, and you see all these huge churches, millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of churches that are empty all week. And, uh, and I just think, we ought to sell those to somebody and do some of that money. But the uh, um, I love when there's people here, all, and there are, by the way, you can almost any time during the week you come up here and there's crowds of people. But so Grace, and this is, I love partnering with other ministries and churches and others too. So Grace, uh, cross country, because uh, if you've been to Grace, they don't have a lot of cross country space. We have space. And so they, we, they came out, we've carved out cross country. So if you're a runner, by the way, we've now got running trails in the woods. Um, and they came and ran cross country. And one of our own, Hannah Smith, won the cross country meet. And so uh, that was there were hundreds of people here yesterday for that. Just It just does your heart good to see people engaging, um, enjoying the, the good things that God has given us. And um, this week we've got um, the compassion. This is gonna be, next Sunday is going to be a pretty cool, I'll reference it in a second, but um, a pretty cool um, outside of the box experience. But we've got the compassion experience. Um, it is, it does, okay, so y'all will appreciate, I think you'll, you will appreciate this. So we're, the, the Compassion Experience, they're recreating a, a third world nation experience. Like you go in, you put on these headphones and you walk through and they show you like these are where the kids who you help with compassion, they live in things like this, in environments like this. Here's the, here's the irony. They have to have, in order for us to come experience a third world nation situation, they have to have electricity and water and a totally flat asphalt uh, place for us to come. And we're just wimps. I was like, well, that's what it takes. I mean, I was laughing with Paul going, the irony of them saying, no, no, we have to have power. We've got to have this. We've got to have generators set up. We've got air conditioning and, in order to create an experience in the third world. Anyway, apparently not. That's not apparently triggering you guys like it did me. So, um, and then the Highland Games, which here's the purpose of stuff like that. 100%, no apologies, is so you can invite people who you'd have a hard time inviting them to church, that you can invite them as like a midway step. Like, come hang out and experience giant people in skirts throwing large objects. And if you can, if you can get them here for that, um, and then maybe they'll hear the gospel and see that this is a place where they can come, and they don't have to be pretentious, and we don't believe in the Sunday best mindset of, hey, make sure you behave perfectly while you're here, and we don't... Anyway, um, so do, please do that. Please don't... We, we don't want to host events for us to go to. 
Um, we're busy enough, but we want to host events for you to bring, for us to bring friends to and neighbors and such like that, especially people who don't know the gospel, the good news. All right, so jumping into Judges, you've got to touch on the pattern. We'll reference this. Um, I think you've got to slide with the pattern there. So this is the cycle that the Judges experience, you experience over and over again in the book of Judges. Um, and so the people turn away from God. God del- judges the people by delivering to their enemies. The people turn back to God. God sends a judge to rescue his people. Then there's a period of peace and, and so forth. So we're going to see that play out three times today. We're going to go look at three different, at least three or four, I guess technically four different judges. Now what's interesting about this is that actually very few of the leaders in the book of Judges are referred to as judges. Um, some of them are, but a lot of them aren't. And so it's, it's even hard to know exactly what to do with that. Some of these people don't seem worthy of the title of anything. I mean, they're just kind of, like we're going to see one today who's just kind of a bandit warlord. And that's uh, really kind of what he brings to the table is that he's, he leads a band of cutthroats. And so when the people of Israel get in trouble, they turn to him. But, and we're going to look at that. But this is the, from Judges 2, 18 through 20. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hands of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groanings because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them, and they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Um, those of us who have kids, this is, this is a cycle that we can fully wrap our brains around. This is... This is the kid who gets in trouble, and so they get sent to their room. They have a timeout. They get grounded. Once they get in there, they, they seem authentically sorry. Um, we've been in there so long. Oh, mommy, I'm so sorry for what I did. I, I'm, I was wrong, and, and can I please get out of my room? And you finally go, you know, fine. I, you know what? You can get out of your room, and they walk straight to their sister and just punch her in the arm. And you go, no, now see, okay, apparently you didn't get in. back to the room back to the room. I mean, you're back. And so this, this cycle happens, and that's very much so what we're experiencing with God judging, being the judge over his people, is that they, they, they misbehave, they do wrong. And we talked last week, um, so I'm not going to try to do that again. Um, but when it says, <coughs> in a second, when it references the first of the judges, it's, and when we see that they're worshiping the Baals and the Asherahs again, like as much as I'd say, like, you know, misbehaving. This goes a little bit beyond misbehaving. At this point, this is rank evil. The level of evil and abuse that is required to worship the Baals and the Asherah is it's, it's un, almost unmentionable. Those of you here last week, you got to watch me try to describe what was going on in the presence of children, and uh, hopefully you got that. Um, if not, we can talk privately. But um, So God's determined, his determination is to bless what they do so long as they as long as he can stomach blessing what they do. As long as what they're doing isn't so evil that there's no way he would be willing to bless it. When Caleb acts, God gives it to him. For example, when we see this over and over, when the people do what God has told them to do, he blesses it, they conquer, they win, they triumph, they have a great experience. When they fail, then he, he's not going to do their homework for them. Um, it's their job to do the work, and it's his job to make it happen. That's the promise he's given them. <clears throat> we see that starting in chapter 3 and other as we follow through, that this is a discipline decision. This isn't just punishment. So um, just a quick parenting lesson. Most parents parent in the form of punishment. It's reactive. I mean, it's usually based on our emotions. Um, the main consequence for our children is that they made dad angry. 
or they made mom angry. And that's the main consequence. That's how they get punished. That's when they get punished, etc. That's awful parenting. And yet it's the main way most of us parent, sadly. That is reactively, emotionally. That's not what God is doing here. So good parenting involves what's called discipline, which means it's the long game. I know what we're working toward. Sometimes that involves punishment. Sometimes that involves reward. Sometimes it involves lectures. Sometimes it involves whatever. But there's an end point we're trying to get to. Um, and when you're raising kids, a great, a great idea is to sit down and, and write out what are five to ten like skill sets, mindsets, um, philosophies, disciplines that we want our children to leave the home with. And rarely is manipulating other people's emotions on the top five or top ten list. Um, it's a valuable skill. Not, I'm not saying it's not. But rarely is that we're trying to, what we claim we're trying to work toward. And yet most of us are parenting. That's its primary result is to teach our children to manipulate our and other people's emotions. So um, God is doing this not in reaction. He s- describes it in advance. He explains what he wants. He gives them very clear ramifications and consequences. There's no, there's no question here as to what's coming. And there's skills he wants them to have. One of the things I got an email about, which is a great question, is one of the skills that very clearly says that God wants his people to have is the ability to have war. And that seems problematic for us, doesn't it? Like we go, that's, that seems like an odd thing for God to want, a disciplined skill for God to want his people to have is the ability to make war. But remember, <clears throat> God sent them here to conquer this land and to, to wipe out or chase out its people. They haven't done that yet. That task hasn't gone away. God didn't remove that task from them just because they became disobedient. That's still their job. So generation after generation of them are still going to have to learn war. I don't think that's what God intended for them. What he wanted was for one generation of them to know war, to defeat their enemies, to kick them out of the land, to worship God alone in safety and security, and then they could have studied peace. But their disobedience stuck them in a situation where they had to continue to learn war. Generation after generation. Um, it's an interesting consequence on humans, um, the ability to, to be involved in war, the ability to fight. And um, we're dealing in our country right now, if you've never studied this, um, generational cohorts are some, an interest to me. Um, mine is the, the Generation X, I think that's the 13th generation, if I remember correctly, of Americans. We were the first generation not drafted. The generation after us, the millennials, not drafted. There's something about drafting people into combat that, as awful as this sounds, that weeds out the people who don't know how to play well with others. Uh, People who don't work well in a team, who can't sacrifice for other people, probably don't survive combat very well. And we didn't have that. Now, that's a great gift. Praise God for all of you, all the veterans and the children of veterans and the grandchildren of veterans who studied war so that my son could study philosophy. The only reason Mark gets to study philosophy at DBU is because some of you studied war in ROTC or on the combat battlefield, and I, I very much so appreciate that. You purchased the freedom for me to study counseling and theology and for my son to study philosophy. Thank you. And that we don't have to do that. Thank you. That being said, there's a place for people to have to learn war. And specifically, you can debate it here among first century and beyond Christians, But that was clearly God's call on his people then. They had to know war, and they had to continue to learn it. Each of them, all the way through David and Solomon, were going to have to be able to fight. 
because of their in lack of obedience, because of their disobedience. So the first ones we run into, the Philistines, I'm going to give you a little bit about the people they fought. The Philistines, um, for the nerds in the audience, the Philistines were the Klingons. <clears throat> they were a warlike culture. Literally, their whole culture surrounded war and battle and fighting. Everywhere they would try to um, establish themselves, they picked fights with people. If those people were more powerful, they kicked them out. If they were less powerful, the Philistines took over. They, everywhere they went, this is how the Philistines... So at one point, they believed the Philistines were actually in Egypt. And finally, the, a powerful enough leader of the Egyptians came in place to transplant the Philistines to what we call the Judean region, to give them five cities along the coast of what is modern-day Israel. That's where they lived. They were scary people. I think we got a couple of old um, sketches of them. They wore their hair. The warriors wore their hair spiked up like that. Um, and so, and they, and in this, though you don't see it in this one, a lot of times apparently they wore large beards as well, clearly making a mane effect, like lions. Um, and so these were, these were people who what they did, they fought. Their whole culture apparently surrounded this. So when you have them in your backyard, there's going to be problems. Uh, when you have a warlike race that all they know is war, that's, there are going to be issues when they're in your backyard. They were supposed to remove the Philistines from Israel. They conquered three of their five cities, which eventually, by the way, fell back to the Philistines. But for a while, they conquered them. Um, but apparently, Ramesses III moved them to Israel because he was sick of them being in his backyard. Um, and then you have the Canaanites, which are different groups of them, the Sidonians. So if you've ever heard of Tyre and Sidon, two cities, actually still two cities, in, in, um, uh, they're north of Israel now. And so, uh, but Sidon was a city, the, Sidon, the Sidonians were from Sidon. These are from cities, most of them. The Hivites, which are a Canaanite group. Um, the Hittites, fascinating history of the Hittites is that they were almost a mythical race of people. Um, they were a, um, allegedly, according to the Bible, a very powerful country, but were treated as mythical by um, non-Bible non scholars because there was so little, there was nothing about them in any archaeological anything. And then a series of discoveries in the early 1900s began to uncover this race of people called the Hittites, who actually were exactly the way the Bible described them. Um, yet again, biblical archaeology wins the day, and which happens so often it's, uh, you can't even count them, um, began to uncover their history. Incidentally, the man called Uriah, who worked for King David, a little ways down the road, Uriah the Hittite, he was one of these. Um, this was a, a foreign land. Um, the Amorites, this was a tribe of people who later founded the city of Babylon. So again, what became a very powerful culture. The Perizzites, the Perizzites were natives to this part of the world. Everybody else had come here. Perizzites were natives to this part of the world. Um, they were kind of the wild men of this area. Um, the Hivites, which were a Canaanite group, and the Jebusites, which were a Canaanite group. What do we mean by Canaanite group? Means from the line of Noah, Noah had three sons and many, many grandsons, and one of his grandsons was a man named Canaan. And so the Canaanite groups are descendants of Noah's grandson, Canaan, who, by the way, was, was essentially cursed by Noah um, to be a, a royal pain for everybody forever, which they were until they were finally wiped out. Canaanite culture no longer exists. Um, if they exist anywhere, it is, it is you know, genetically you know, added into some of the Middle Eastern cultures, but as a culture, as a people, the Canaanites don't exist. There are no Jebusites 
or Hivites, they're, they're gone. They cease to exist. This is where the cycle begins. In verse 7, I mean 3, I says 3-1, but I think it's supposed to be 3-7. I may have sent you the wrong verse. Anyway, I'm looking at, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Good, it is seven. So again, we've talked about who these people were and the issues with this. So here comes our first judge. We're halfway through week three, and I'm just now getting to a judge in the book of Judges. <clears throat> Othniel is the first one. This is probably the same guy. It seems to be the same guy, the, the relative of Caleb who took the city of wisdom, the city of books. Remember that guy who listened to his wife? Um, so he is called Othniel. How's this for a name? I, I fully expect after teaching you this that someone will name their child Othniel before long. Othniel means the power of God. That's a, that's a pretty bad name, huh? The force of God. That's who this guy, this was the force of God. And the force of God, um, the, the Mesopotamians, who were not one of the tribes who they were supposed to wipe out, they were actually a very, much more powerful group of people, had apparently conquered, conquered Israel for about eight years um, Othniel rose up with the people of Israel and chased off the Mesopotamians. We have peace for 40 years, and Othniel dies. That's the entirety of his story. So I, I looked up an artist rendering of Othniel. I have no idea if there's anything accurate about that or not. But he looks pretty tough. Then the pattern starts. Immediately, the people of Israel go back to worshiping the Baals and the Asheroth. Um, as soon as they do, a neighbor nation, the Moabites, you, we will learn more about, the, about Moab and, um, during the time of nativity. We're going to study Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. Um, and so the Moabites rise up. Their king, Eglon, enslaves the uh, people of Israel for 18 years. This time the Lord raises up, quote, a deliverer. This person is never called a judge um, named Ehud. Ehud means united. And that's what his name meant. Now, now, check out Ehud. Ehud is a therapist kind of dream come true. Um, he, he has um, all kinds of issues, that, not including this, these don't count, but he was a Benjamin, man from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, excuse me, I'm, I'm jumping ahead of myself. I don't mean Ehud. We'll get, to, we'll get to who I mean here in a second with Jephthah. But Ehud was a left-handed man. By the way, Benjaminites were often left-handed. No, no one knows what to do with this. Just happens to be common for people from the tribe of Benjamin to be left-handed. In fact, there's a group of them later who are, are actually ambidextrous. They use their left hand and right hand and sling stones. So, the, you know, David slinging his stone. Apparently, there's a whole boot group of Benjaminites later who can sling, sling stones, two slings simultaneously. Um, and for those of you who don't think it like, don't get the, the impact of that, you're talking a essentially something to weight and size of a billiard ball, a little bit larger, and they sling him. I don't know, I've made a sling, I've been slinging, and Paul's done some slinging. I mean, they, they, they fly out of there, it's got to be close to 100 miles an hour. I mean, they come out of there hard. And so the idea of a billiard ball coming at you at 100 miles an hour would be impressive, much less a few hundred of them slinging two of them at a time. I don't know how they get them, like, I always wonder how they loaded two at a time. I don't understand. I have a hard time loading one and not dropping it. And so the idea of having two, anyway, now I'm getting off on my stuff. So, um, so Ehud comes up with a, with a, with a clever plan um, to deal with Eglon. I have no idea how God feels about this plan. There's never anything in the Bible that tells us how God feels about this plan. Does he hate this plan? Is this a great plan in God's mind? We don't know, but here's the plan. He takes a double-edged blade, a cubit long. So tip your elbow to the tip of your finger. Either the whole sword is that length or the blade is. 
So that's, that's good-sized blade, right? He straps it to the inside, probably the inside of his right thigh, which no one's going to search for it there, right? Because no one had watched all the movies we've watched. We all know you're supposed to search somebody and check. You don't let them in with this. Like this plays out like a movie scene that would be kind of a bad movie scene now because you'd be like, well, obviously he's sneaking in there with a weapon. But they didn't know that back then, right? So he, he comes to, to Eglon, Ehud does. Um, he comes to Eglon, and, and here's, here's a couple of wild little things there. He tricks Eglon into a private meeting. Now this is, you're not picturing Eglon well yet because the Bible, Hebrews tell stories in backwards order from us. So I'm going to tell you the correct order. Eglon is a massively fat man. Um, he's so fat that in a minute, when Ehud stabs him with this weapon, it's going to disappear into his body. That long. All the way in and vanish. Now, I wrote myself a note that I was like, this would be a really funny moment. to, to You know how I'll do things like I had someone stand up to look like the Apostle Peter's to do like, so for example, and then be like, no, I'm, I'm kidding, I'm not... I'm not going to ask somebody to stand up like... But here's, here's what I thought, though. I did think this. If you thought I was going to call on you, it may be time to start dieting or exercise, right? Just, just as a side. If you're like, oh, he's going to call on me? Like, it, it may be time. So, it's totally inappropriate. Um, so, here's what happens. So, hey, this is the, there's a tiny little detail here that I think is worth mentioning. It says that, that Ehud tricks Eglon into meeting him at a place where, there's, where there are altars set up. Altars to false gods set up near Gilgal, which is also where the angel of the Lord had come from and where God had told Joshua to put 12 stones. Here's the question that strikes me. What business had Israel, did Israel have allowing altars to foreign gods to be put of all places in Israel where God had had them stack the 12 stones to cross the Jordan River? This has got to be radically offensive to God. And I don't know if there's just poetic justice in this, but that is where Ehud tricks Eglon into meeting him. Now, Eglon has a house there, apparently. Ehud goes to him and in a very dramatic movie moment says, I've got a message from God for you. And the message from God is for him to stab him with this sword. So he takes the sword and stabs him. The dramatic flare of the fat closing around the blade and, again, we're in church, this is hard, this is tough, the natural effects on the, on the bowels of dying, um, which is what happens. Actually, it's right there. If you haven't read it, go back and read it. And then what must have been a rooftop escape because he locks the door from the inside and then Ehud escapes while Eglon's followers stand outside waiting for their king to come out and then finally are like, he's been in there a long time. And finally, they break down the door and they find their king dead. Meanwhile, Ehud has fled, raised an army, and attacks the people um, when they come back out, the Moabites when they come back out. Um, they stop at a fording place in the Jordan River where the people of Moab are going to try to come. And as the, as the soldiers of Moab try to cross the river, they stand on the other side of the river and kill them as they try to come out of the river. Thousands and thousands of them are slain this way. Finally, Israel has peace for 80 years. Now, again, how did God feel about this Weasley way of defeating their enemies? I don't know. He essentially goes unmentioned in many of the stories of these people. Is this, is this meant to be honoring Ehud? 
I don't know. Is this, a, is this a good plan? Is this what God would have had Ehud do? I don't know, and I don't know that Ehud ever asked. This is just what he does, and God uses Ehud, good or bad, to bring freedom to his people. And there's a lot of that in the book of Judges, that God uses the behavior of these people, good or bad. When we get to Samson, you're going you're to be like, really? This is, this is the guy that God uses, and God uses him despite the fact that Samson has almost no admirable qualities. It seems worldly. I mean, this is a plan you or I might have come up with. This isn't like a, a plan from God. God's plans tend to include things like marching around Jericho for seven days. They make no sense to us. He wants it to be very clear that he did it. This comes across like a plan that one of us would have come up with. Well, let's assassinate their king and then hide at the place where they're going to have to cross the river and slay them all. That makes sense to us as humans. That's why it's hard for me to imagine this as God's plan. But does God use it? He does. Israel and the Israel, Moab actually serves Israel for a while, which is a turn of events. Soon after that, the Philistines become a problem. And a guy named Shamgar, who we know essentially nothing about, rises, raises up an army, creates a war band, um, and he, he kills 600 Philistines by himself with an ox goad, essentially a spear. Um, there is so little about Shamgar that there's essentially no such thing as an artist rendering except a children's book picture of him. But that shows an ox goad really well. Um, that's what an ox goad looks like. Kills 600 Philistines all by himself with an ox goat, essentially a pointed stick. Shamgar means stranger, and he is a stranger to us. We don't know anything about him except that he, he decided to fight back, and he did, and God gave him a massive victory. He killed 600 Philistines, and that's the entirety of his story. Um, neither he nor Ehud are really technically called judges, um, nor is what, they, is what they did called judging um, they just, they came up with, they were kind of war heroes. They came up, they defeated the enemies one way or another. And that's the story we get there. Now I'm going to skip over a couple, a couple of the most famous ones. <clears throat> um, uh, Deborah Hart is teaching a class right now, but obviously her, not surprisingly, her favorite judge is Deborah. Um, and so we're going to be skipping over Deborah um, in order to do, I want to cover a couple of other ones and come back next week. Um, next week, it's going to be kind of fun. Um, next week, I will be um, uh, tag team uh, preaching with uh, Sean Groves. Um, the Groves family, um, uh, they're here. Sean's parents are here, part of our church. And, uh, and he's coming. He's going to be leading us in worship because he's part of, he's, he works with Compassion International. So I'm going to teach a little mini sermon on, on Deborah and Barak next week. And we're going to kind of slap off taking turns on, on preaching and teaching next week. And so... Um, if, you, if you don't know him, look him up. Um, he has a beautiful voice and great music. He doesn't do a whole lot of singing anymore, so we're really kind of getting a treat, to be honest, um, that he's been willing to come and, and do some singing with us as well. Um, anyway, it'll be, it'll be great fun, and it's going to be a great uh, application because we're going to be talking about how the story, the account of, of Deborah and Barak really is one about immediate obedience. Um, and as Christians, sometimes we're not good at that. Just as humans, we're not good at that. Um, so the story, I've told you this. I've, we've talked about Shamgar. We've talked about Othniel. I forgot to show you a picture of Ehud. Um, so I found this one. Uh, which I think works. Um, just my personal opinion. Okay, so, so here we go. Um, 
<laughs> this, is, this is the guy, the, the next guy, Jephthah, who we're going to talk about, and I'm going to wrap stuff up with. Jephthah is a fascinating character, and, uh, and there's, I think there is some stuff to learn very much so from Jephthah. Um, he has some issues. He's the illegitimate child um, of, a, of a man and a prostitute. Um, he is clearly unloved. His, his brothers, who are legitimate from their father, literally drive him out of the house when he's a young man. And we get no word from dad. We don't know who, really know who dad is. And so this, this guy starts off with a lot of strikes against him. Judges 11.3. We're way over in Judges 11 now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back. Don't worry. We'll come back through Deborah, Barak, and, and um, Gideon. But so he gathers together some friends. In 11.3 it says, Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So Jephthah forms a street gang. He's the original Crips and Bloods. And so he's very powerful because he has all these cutthroats who live with him and work for him and, and probably cutthroats for him. Um, he's not a good guy. And the Ammonites make war on Israel. So listen to, listen to what the people of Israel do. So again, notice what they don't do is go to God. But God decides to rescue them anyway through a kind of a strange way. But here's, here's what they... So in verse, chapter 11, verse 6, And they said to Jephthah, Come be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. Did I tell you these, these, some of these play out like a movie plot? So the city gets overrun with their enemies. The guy who they've always hated up until now, the bandit who lives out in the woods, but who's got powerful people, and he's got weapons, and he's got men who know how to fight. So they go to him because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And I mean, it just, it just plays out like almost a bad movie. What that tells you is that all of our modern-day movies are, are stealing plots from the Bible, right? That's what they're... And so Jephthah says to the elders of Gilead, wow, didn't you hate me and drive me out of my father's house? He's going he's to get his pound of flesh here. Why have you come now when you're in such distress? The elders of Gilead say to Jephthah, this is why we have turned to you now, that you may go out with us, I don't think there's a lot of with going on here, and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah says to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me. Here, finally, somebody mentions God. It's been a long time since somebody's talked much about God. But Jephthah, the cutthroat, says, if the Lord gives, me, gives them over to me, I will be your head. In other words, I'm going to be in charge from this point forward. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. Now, I'm not confident that at this point, all of this language about God is not like people nowadays talking about God. That they don't mean God. This is just things people say. I don't know. I don't know how to put that in there. This feels a little bit like a deal with the devil. Um, not literally. The devil is on the side of the Ammonites. But So Jephthah, which by the way means to release. I think the idea here is like to release a prisoner. Or maybe, maybe in our modern, which they didn't have these back then, but maybe to release a wild animal from a zoo. These people have, have set someone free. They've woken the dragon. So, huge shock. Jephthah and the Ammonites decide to talk first. Now, here's what's funny, and not funny. It's funny in that very painful way, in that Jephthah and the Ammonites, catch this, have a big argument over who hurt whom first and who should own which land in Israel. 
Anybody ever heard of that happening? Oh my gosh. This is not new. These type of arguments have been going on and are still going on. Jephthah and the Ammonites are having one of the oldest fights in history. Who hurt whom first in Israel? There aren't, there, by the way, there are no innocent parties in that part of the world, including us. Everybody's guilty of something. But he and the Ammonites have a fight about who allegedly hurt whose feelings first. So in, in the end, Jephthah seems to reveal the actual truth of the book of Judges with this verse. This is actually why I think maybe the book of Judges should have been called the judge, not the book of Judges. As in Judges eleven twenty seven, 27, the second half says, The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. I think what's most valuable about the book of Judges is to watch how God judges through the book of Judges. How he handles that cycle and what he does to discipline his people. Um, the Spirit of God is on Jephthah and he successfully faces the Ammonites. He's going to go out to face the Ammonites. This is one of the most heartbreaking stories. And I mean literally one of the most heartbreaking stories in the entire Bible is where we are. Every time Jephthah is pictured, Jephthah is pictured with someone. Always. Every artist rendering I could find of Jephthah. Jephthah is famous for one thing. Who is always in a painting of Jephthah? Do you know? His daughter. This is one of the toughest passages in the entire Bible. Jephthah is going to be obedient to God and what God has told him to do and what God has told the people of Israel to do. And for some reason, he opens his foolish mouth. And here's what he says. Jephthah makes a vow to the Lord and said, this is in verse 30 and 31, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Why? Why would he do this? I mean, does, does he really think like a sheep is going to be the first thing that comes out of his house to greet him? Or maybe his dog? What could he possibly be thinking at this point? So, is there anything in this passage that implies that God wanted an extra vow? That God was looking for this? That this was a positive step on his part? I see nothing. God has already made it clear. He's made a covenant with the people of Israel. When you go fight the enemies who I've sent you to fight, I will give you victory. When you don't, I'm going to bring discipline on you. There's no need for this. And yet Jephthah pulls this. I, I, anyway, it boggles my mind. God has a standing rule. The Spirit of the Lord is already on him. The Bible says that. It is already on him. He doesn't need to do this. And then he opens his mouth, makes this absurd pledge, and he goes and fights. My atheist friend, who I'm going to be on the phone with again tonight um, for part of his podcast again, his question, his, literally his question to me was about this passage. Of all of the Bible, this was one of the first places he went to, to bring insult on God, was to say, how would God honor a guy like Jephthah? I mean, how is that okay? And I had to admit, like, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. All right. I guess there was something noble. Maybe there's something strangely noble about the fact that Jephthah follows through with his pledge. But, but man, I think I'm reaching. I think the fact even that Jephthah follows through with his pledge is an indication that he doesn't actually know God well. I'm, I'm going to explain that in a second. Okay, so what happens is, those of you who don't know, he comes back from battle. He is victorious. He comes back from battle. And of course, his daughter, his only daughter, who's a child, she's not yet married, comes out of the house to meet him. 
She's usually portrayed as dancing out of the house with tambourines. And Jephthah is pictured with his head in his hands like this. It's, it's heartbreaking. Let me, let me tell you why I think. Now, I know I'm reaching here, and I know it's important to follow through with a pledge to God. But here's, here's the part that indicates to me I think he's missing something. And I don't, here's what's interesting. You would think this is all Old Testament stuff. I will tell you as a therapist, I cannot believe how often I hear people who have made pledges to God. Now, it may not be, with God as my witness, I will never go hungry again, right? Although that's an, certainly an example of a pledge. It may be, I will never forgive this person. Or it may be, I will never love anyone again. Or maybe I'm never going to trust anyone again. Whatever it is, very often there is a pledge before God. And people, it's amazing me how often I find people rooted in some pledge that they've made that they had no right making at some point in their childhood or in their youth. Sometimes it's about themselves and how worthless they are or whatever. It's amazing to see these pledges that people take and, and stand by. Let me give you a counter story to kind of help with what I think is going on here. And it's the story of Jonah. So the story of Jonah, very quickly... Um, I don't want to go into a whole lot of detail with it. It's easy to argue. So I feel like I could easily argue with New Testament passages about the forgiving nature of God and how God is merciful and, and how someone like Peter who made multiple pledges before God, I, I will die before I... And then he totally blows it and then God completely forgives him and restores him. One of my favorite things to teach. Top three is the story of the, the reconciliation of Peter. I think I could do that, but let me, let me stick with Old Testament just to, just to help with this. So here you have the story of Jonah. Jonah, God tells Jonah, hey, um, I want you to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. The Assyrians were, at that time, maybe the most hated culture by the Jewish people. So the capital of Assyria, Nineveh, um, where they worshipped the fish god, among other things, that actually was accurate out of Veggie Tales, just so you'll know. They actually did worship a fish god. And so, and so God, God sends Jonah to go warn the Ninevites about impending disaster. God is so fed up with the Ninevites, he's going to destroy their entire city. He makes this proclamation at the beginning of Jonah. So Jonah runs the other way to get away from Nineveh, and we don't know why. At that point, we don't know why. So then the ship sinks, and, and Jonah is either, depending on who you ask, either dying or actually dies, and then God resurrects him or at least rescues him by having him swallowed up by a big fish, and the big fish takes him back towards the shores of Assyria, vomits him onto the shore, and then Jonah, probably a little worse for the wear, decides to um, wander into Nineveh. He warns the people of Nineveh. The people of Nineveh respond. And listen, listen to this. In Jonah 3, near the end of Jonah, the book of Jonah, Jonah 3, verse 10, we finally get to hear what Jonah's motivation was for fleeing from God. Is it because he was afraid to do his job? Not at all. He actually was afraid that he would do his job too well. That's why Jonah fled. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. And this displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, listen to this prayer, by the way. Oh, Lord, is not this what I said was going to happen? I knew this would happen. You said you were going to wipe these people out, but you didn't mean it. I know you too well. You say you're going to wipe these people out, but if they repented, I knew perfectly well you wouldn't. I knew it. Here's the irony is Jonah knows God well and hates that about God. 
but he still knows him well and turns out to be right. He says this, like, that's exactly, oh Lord, now is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made my haste to flee to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And he hates this about God. I love that that's the list. And he's screaming and whining about the fact that I knew you're so merciful. (laughs) Slow to anger too. I mean, Jonah knows God well. He has seen people in sin repent and God has rescued them and restored them. And he knows this about, about God. And he hates the idea that his hated enemies, the Assyrians, the capital of Assyria might escape it. His thought was, if I just run... God's already said in 40 days he's going to wipe them out. If I can stay away for 40 days, it's a done deal. And God drags him by his ear all the way back to Nineveh. He proclaims it, and sure enough, the people repent. I believe, I can be wrong about this, I believe that if, Ehu, that if Jephthah had fallen on his face before God and said, God, I am a fool, what was I doing making a pledge like this to you? I was prideful and arrogant. I believe that somehow my magical thinking was going to make you do something different. And I thought, oh, look, if I, dangle, if I dangle something before God, then God will feel like he can't help but help me defeat the Ammon. Like God needs that. Yet we've all done it. God, if you'll get me out of this situation, I'll, God, if you'll just, we've all done it. And by the way, and most of us have then broken that, yes? All of us have broken oaths before God probably. Praise God, he is a type of merciful God that restores people even under those conditions. Now, again, I say, maybe there is some type of nobility in the fact that, that, that Jephthah, and even more noble, that his daughter follows through with this pledge. We literally have a people, a person, I know there's debate over whether he actually did it. I think the, the passage is clear that he did. I could be wrong about that too, but I think he sacrificed his daughter to God. A God who, though... There are times when he tells like the people of Israel to wipe out all the people in Canaan, including children. He doesn't call child sacrifice as not a way to worship Yahweh. I don't know why we don't get clearer instruction on this from God himself. What we get is nothing. Nothing. This whole process, God is essentially not involved in it. I think that's how he gets there. So here's my encouragement. I think we think we know better. I think Jephthah thought he knew better. Maybe Ehud Ehud thought he knew better. These people are not going to God for help. God is helping them anyway because he's just so merciful. But I, I don't know that they're doing things God's way. We like to push this. This, to me, is an application that we can wrap our brains around. So you get the, those. So you may not be able to tell what this is very well. I'll, just, I'll explain it. So this is little Michael a couple years ago, and he had a new balloon, the other picture may be clearer. Could you turn to the, try the other one? There you go. So I tell Michael, listen, don't drop that balloon. That, that room in our house has a vaulted ceiling. Don't, don't drop your balloon or it's gone. Like, don't do that. You need to tie it to something. I don't want to tie it to anything. You know, let's tie it to your wrist or put an anchor on it or something on it. I don't want to do that. Look at how the boy is holding the balloon. This is what he did because I told him not to drop the balloon. He then, he then gets the, and he's holding it to tip, 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 and, his, and he kept doing this little, little tiny movements with his fingers. 
It's funny when kids do it. Is this not us, though? That God, that God gives a, like, here's my way of doing things. And we go, okay, well, I will, I'll either do everything I can to barely, what, how far can I push that, God? How far am I allowed to push that? Like, if, if, if this is not okay, can I go here? How about, how about here? Is there a way to? And I feel like this is what we're seeing with some of these early judges. And, and Jephthah's not one of the early ones. The others is, is that mindset. How far can I push this? What, what can I what can I do that I know better? So I really want to encourage us, this magical thinking that we have. God is, God is not, he's not someone from Hogwarts. He is, he is God. And he ordains certain truths and certain things. This is the way this works, this magical thinking. Here, here's what I said. I wrote this down. Stop, let us as a church and as individuals and as families stop bargaining and start obeying. That to me seems like a better choice. Maybe even better. Less strategy, more submission. And if we would stop strategizing ways to engage with things in our own hearts rather than saying, let's just do what God has called me to do. A lot of times that's very clear. Less strategy, more submission. Let's pray. Father, um, as we get to look at your word and in some of these stories, God, kind of dig through them. And I don't, I don't know, you, you do. And the power of your spirit is sufficient to show us stuff through Othniel and Ehud and even Shamgar. And of course, Jephthah. God, that you teach us something through this. And I pray that you would do so. That you would, your spirit would work at us. Your word is that powerful. This power of your spirit to illuminate your word is without limit. So God, I pray that each, each person in here, through these accounts... Maybe, maybe we'll learn something about ourselves, that maybe we are bargainers. And you've not called us to bargain. You've called us to obey. Maybe we're, we're strategists. Maybe we've got some great agenda in mind. And Lord, I, I pray you would rescue us from our own strategic thinking and instead teach us to submit to your way of thinking. We're not great at that. In fact, we're pretty awful at it. But Lord, I pray that you would at least give us the heart to try to submit to you, to try to obey what we already know. So often we already know. We don't need new magical anything. We just need to obey what we already know. So Lord, I pray you would teach us to do that in your son's name. Amen.